Mark chapter 11 this morning. Then they came to Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill Jesus. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when the evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. The word of God. Please be seated. So we are in this series, this long series called Question Mark, and we have three weeks to go until Easter. And we're looking at the questions Jesus asked, but as I look at this passage for today, I have questions of Jesus, because this passage is somewhat troubling, of Jesus overturning and overthrowing tables and making a commotion in the temple. Jesus seems to be angry and, and, and throwing things around. Pastor Ikki had talked about raising parents, uh, raising parents, that's what it feels like. <laughs> raising kids and sometimes the little demons, right? So the question here that I have of this story is, did Jesus have a tantrum or a meltdown or what? And so child psychologists have talked quite a bit about the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum. You can see it up on the screen there. A tantrum is an outburst of frustration or anger. It is an emotional distress, but it's emotional distress that is purposeful, goal, or uh, outcome-oriented. So a tantrum has something in mind. It usually doesn't last very long because the person, and look, hey, it's not only kids who have tantrums, right? Can I hear amen? amen? Let's be honest. So a tantrum has a goal in mind because we want to fix something and we want to do something. But a meltdown is an involuntary response to emotional distress, being overwhelmed and having a loss of control. Have you ever had that happen to you? Or your child? Or sitting in a restaurant? So when we look at the story of Jesus, did Jesus have a righteous meltdown? Probably not. Did Jesus have a righteous tantrum? Maybe. Maybe it's in the middle. What is happening in the story? We all know meltdowns really well. My most famous meltdown, and again, it's easier to talk about our childhood than our meltdowns now as adults, right? It's a safe space to go to the past. <laughs> My meltdown uh, happened when I was, I think, 10 or 11, and I had to have dental surgery, and I am so afraid of needles poking into me. And I had to go for, need, uh, for, for dental surgery, and my parents tried to calm me and get me ready, but when I went on the, in, on the bed into the, the, the operating theater where they took me, I did not have a tantrum. I did want to have an outcome, but I had a meltdown, like, my parents probably never seen before. It did feel like I was demon-possessed. This big meltdown because 
as they try to put this needle in me for the um, anesthetic, whatever it's called, I just started convulsing, going, no! And eventually they have to get two or three nurses come in to hold me down so that they can give me the shot, put me to sleep. Meltdown. I've had lots of tantrums as well. When I was younger, playing tennis with my brother, we lived uh, in a town called Heidelberg. It was, in the out, uh, uh, it was a rural area, and there was a tennis court on the school campus where my parents worked. And the tennis court was kind of in the middle of nowhere. There were just lots of bushes and things and, uh, around it. And we played tennis, and my brother is three years older than me, but I was really competitive and also uh, a little bit more gifted in sports than him. So we were always at the same level, but I lost this particular day. And what I did is I took the 20 to 30 tennis balls that we had bought collectively with both our pocket money, and I just started hitting it out of the court all the way as far as I can to the field. And I looked at my brother and I said, we're not playing anymore. And I walked away. Purpose, out, purposeful outcome, done. Jesus seems to have a tantrum or a meltdown or something that's going on here. But when we look at the story closer, it is important to see that, that Jesus is not having a meltdown and he is not having a tantrum. In fact, it is easy for us to reduce this story to Jesus strolling into the temple, seeing stuff he didn't like, and then suddenly swelling up with seething rage, and then somehow that resulted in him just throwing things around in a tantrum. It is easy for us to reduce the story to that. But it is not that. And if it's not that, then what is it? Now, there are many ways that biblical scholars have talked about this story. Uh, here are at least three main ways in which people have interpreted this passage. First, people saw this act of Jesus as an economic protest. Temple practices uh, where religion and money should not mix. Jesus was protesting this mix of religion and money. Kind of like a first century Occupy Wall Street kind of thing. That's one way in which people see this. Another way in which people see this is this was for Jesus an anti-imperial resistance act. Because you see, the Romans had the Jewish leaders as their puppets and doing extortion of the people. <laughs> and so Jesus in this act was perhaps challenging this alliance between Rome and the temple, demanding to keep profits. So that's another way. A third way in which to look at this passage is that this is a critique of the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system that was just instituted in the Old Testament, and with Jesus coming there, the old is gone, the new is here. And so now we don't have the sacrifice system that happened in the temple with all the animals uh, that the people brought to be sacrificed, but now we have spiritual worship. Those are three ways in which people predominantly have looked at this text. And there probably is truth to all of the, these, but there is something more that is going on in this passage. There's something more going on because Jesus' actions are premeditated, deliberate, and symbolic. And the reason I say this is because in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, a couple of verses before this story happens, 
We see Jesus coming in what we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, coming into the city from Bethany on the mountain towards Jerusalem. And the, he's on a donkey and the people are saying Hosanna to Jesus. Mark tells us right after that happened, Jesus, it says, then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late and so he went back to Bethany. So Jesus on Palm Sunday rides in the donkey, looks over Jerusalem, and then the story goes into Jesus simply going into the temple, having a look about, retreating for the night. And then the story goes the next day, he goes into the temple. So Jesus had time to think about how he will act as he goes into the temple. This was not something spontaneous, and it's important for us to recognize this. Also, this story contains one of Mark's famous sandwiches. And I know it's close to lunch and we shouldn't say the word sandwich. But if you uh, look, there are two stories about figs, the burger, uh, like the buns at the top or the, the bread at the top and the bottom. And then the story in the middle is the meat or the cheese or whatever it is. There's the cursing of the fig tree, the clearing of the temple, and then the withered fig tree. And the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus and the disciples are walking about. Jesus sees a fig tree, and he says, this fig tree doesn't have any fruit, even though it's not in season. A weird thing for Jesus to say. We won't get into that, but the point is that Jesus looks at a fig tree that is not bearing fruit. And then Jesus curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit. Then Jesus goes and clears the temple, and when this clearing of the temple is done, Next day, we see Jesus and the disciples walking about, and Peter goes like, ha, Jesus, look, that tree that you cursed is dead to the roots. And so this is, again, one of Mark's famous sandwiches trying to tell a story where each of these influence each other. So Jesus, the point is, Jesus' actions are deliberate, premeditated, and they are symbolic. So, this is called in your Bible, there's a heading, by the way, headings weren't original to the Bible, we added those, but the heading says the cleansing of the temple, and this may be somewhat of a misunderstanding, because it's more a clearing of uh, the temple, or possibly a closing of the temple that is happening here, and verse 17 of Mark chapter 11 is key to helping us understand that this was a prophetic, symbolic action by Jesus stating that the temple will be destroyed. So verse 17 says the following. Is it not written, and this is the question for us today, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? As we see what Jesus is doing here and how Mark tells this story is to have this fancy collab between two celebrity prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, put them together in the word in the mouth of Jesus. And so we're going to look at each of these two separately because we have to understand them in their context in order to understand what Jesus is doing here. There's a lot of scripture we're going to read here. Are you okay with that? Here we go. Isaiah chapter 56 says the following, thus says the Lord, uh, act justly and do what is righteous because my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. 
Happy is the person who does this, the person who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not making it impure, and avoid doing any evil. Don't let the immigrant who has joined with the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from the people. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. The Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, choose what I desire and remain royal to my covenant. In my temple courts, I will give them a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an enduring name that won't be removed. The immigrants who have joined me, serving me and loving my name, becoming my servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath without making it impure, and those who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and bring them joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their entire uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices on my altar. And then it says, my house will be known as a house of prayer for all peoples, says the Lord, who gathers Israel's outcasts, I will gather still others to those I have already gathered. When Jesus asked this question, he reaches back to Isaiah, the prophet, to give us an understanding of what's going on here in Mark. So, this is all about vision. Isaiah 56, and this passage is all about vision. In the Old Testament, when the people are in exile and the temple is destroyed, the prophets come and they proclaim a time in the future when the temple of God will be with the people. But it will be a new kind of temple, a temple that is rooted in justice. In fact, in verse 10, it says the sentinels or the watchmen are the people who are blind and keeping God's people and the other on the outskirts from coming into the temple. And so we see there's a vision for a new temple, but Isaiah tells us the religious leaders is the obstacle to gathering all people. And so Jesus uses this passage in Isaiah to point to God's dream or God's vision for what the temple needs to be and will be. And so central, core to this understanding is that everyone is welcome here especially foreigners, especially eunuchs, the people who were marginalized. Jesus says, the vision for the temple is about inclusion and embrace. And Jesus uses Isaiah to tell the people in his day, and this temple is not that glorious temple where all people will gather. There were Gentiles at the temple, okay, but they had to come with strings attached and they were exploited by the religious leaders. They did not have full inclusion. Their participation was limited. And there's nothing worse about saying, all are welcome, and then when I come to your place, tell me you're not welcome. If I'm not welcome, tell me this up front. Don't pretend like I am and then mistreat me once I'm there. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not looking for some temple reform, but he's declaring in the strongest terms possible that this current temple is not and will not obtain God's dream and vision for the temple. Isaiah tells it like it is, and Jesus says, Isaiah was right, and you are them. And Isaiah says, a day is coming when God's temple will be a house of prayer for all people. 
overturned the tables. So Jesus reaches to Isaiah to tell the people gathered there that God has a vision of inclusion for God's temple. And then Jesus reaches to Jeremiah. And in the Jeremiah passage, we see that it is about a failed reality of the temple. Again, we're going to read a lot of verses. Here we go. Jeremiah chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of uh, Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Must have been great praise song. Jeremiah says, do not trust in these words. This is the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, that's a stranger, not the green monster in the sky. If you, although they're included too. Uh, <laughs> if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan and the widow, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after your own gods to your own herd, then I will be in this place with you in the land that I gave you of all to your ancestors forever and ever. Jesus reaches back to the prophet and says, here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Jeremiah keeps going. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you may not have known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. Hey, man, it's not me preaching. It's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Has this house, which you call by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place that was Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first, and see what I did there for the wickedness of the people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, says the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and to the place I gave to you and your ancestors just what I did to Shiloh. And I will, I will cast you out of my sight just as I cast out all of the king's folk, all of the offspring of Ephraim. Jesus reaches to Isaiah to say, the vision for God's temple is inclusion and embrace and welcome. And then he reaches for Jeremiah to say, you are doomed. Because you are doing exactly what Jeremiah is saying. The problem of the temple was in that time. And so, while Isaiah looks towards the vision and dream for God, Jeremiah looks at the reality of the temple, and the reality is that the temple is cursed because of people turning their backs and hearts against God. By the way, the word den that is used, the word den of robbers to us today may sound strange, but for people in those days, it wasn't a weird saying. A den in the Greek is not a place where crimes are committed, but a place to where which wicked characters retreat for safety after committing their crimes. Oof, did you hear that? 
A den is a place to where which the wicked people come back to be safe. The temple. A den of robbers. Again, the Greek helps us here because the word robber, we think simply of a thief, but it's more likely a bandit, someone who does not merely rob, but makes money by means of violence and extortion. So when Jesus says, reaches back to Jeremiah and says, den of robbers, people who are violently extorting people, making money off of the poor and off of the marginalized, and going to the temple and say, we're safe. This is the temple. This is the temple. Woohoo! This is the temple. Wrong praise song, brothers. Den of robbers refers to the rulers of Jerusalem, the monarchy and the temple who practice injustice, oppressed the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the aliens, and shed innocent blood, and they think they are safe because they've showed up for worship. Jesus reaches to the prophet Jeremiah to say, that the reality of your temple practice now is that you oppress rather than provide, you take rather than give, you exclude rather than include, and I will cast you out. Turn the tables. So we see when we put these two together, Isaiah and Jeremiah, this collaboration between two star prophets, Jesus brings a powerful condemnation, condemnation to the religious leaders in the temple. My vision is not a reality in this place. And by the way, the word cast out is a really strong word in Greek. The word cast out, by the way, is the same word that is used for Jesus when the Spirit casts Jesus out into the desert, drives, is how we put it in our Bibles, usually in English. The Spirit drove Jesus into the desert. The Spirit cast out Jesus into the desert. And the same word is used for when Jesus uh, delivered demons. When Jesus exercised demons, it was Jesus drove out those demons. He cast them out. So Jesus is using strong words here, but make no mistake, it is a strong word, but the power that it implies relies on the authority of the voice of Jesus, a voice that is moved by the Spirit of God. Scribes and Pharisees, it says, try to kill him. The religious leaders responsible for this oppression, extortion, abuse, and misuse of the temple need to be held accountable. They have taken this vision of a grand, embracing, loving God, and the name, and in the name of God, and doing good, exploited it. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you heard about CBS had this reality TV show called The Activist. You probably didn't see it because it was cast out. Because once, uh, I think it's Usher and uh, Priyanka Chopra and Gianna Hoff, they had celebrities come to be the judges, and then they found activists who would compete with each other in doing good. As soon as they released this, the online backlash was immediate and strong. What a dumb idea. 
Not just what a dumb idea, what a wrong idea. Activists who try to make the world better, not for their own glory, competing to each other to win the glory of a prize. Oh, you have made my house into a den of robbers. The show got canceled, x out. And here is the reality. The temple failed to live up to the vision of God. The religious leaders are held responsible and cast out. And so what we have here from Jesus is this amazing prophetic act. Just a few more minutes. I know I've said that a couple of times. Can't wait for Pastor Ricky to get here. Just a few more things. So what are we to make of this story? Number one, the story is not about violence. The story is not about violence. It has been used this way, and you may have seen memes like this. If someone asks, what would Jesus do, remind them that turning over tables and breaking out whips is a possibility. Or, I was flipping tables before it was cool. It's been doing the rounds the last number of years with various violent outbreaks in our country. And when we think about war going on in the world, have we as Christians used this passage to justify violence? The story of the closing of the temple is told in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only Gospel that has a whip in it is the Gospel of John, the last of our Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke does not have Jesus with a whip. We're, of course, concerned with Mark. And we have to be careful to conflate stories. You can go do a Google search, which I did, of paintings of Jesus cleansing or closing the sanctuary. And you will be hard pressed to find a painting with Jesus without a whip. Here's an example of a bunch of them. Jesus with his arm raised with a whip. Next one. Jesus with his arm raised with a whip with the people hunkering back. Next one. Jesus with his arms raised with the people and the kids scattering and running about. Next one. Jesus up high, towering above everybody else with the authority of a whip chasing people out. Next one. Jesus again with a, uh, up high with the whip. One more. Jesus with a whip. And in this painting specifically, you can see that a human being is in the way. Unfortunately, there is a dark history of Christians using this passage to justify unjustifiable violence. We have to be careful, friends. And by the way, the violence here is against the people. I read a 26-page paper uh, yesterday about the, the dangers of a singular savior. I won't get into that today. But what I did learn from this is that the people that you see in these paintings who were being chased out and whose tables were overturned were 
in all likelihood slaves, lower class people, and women who did the dirty job for the money exchangers. You would never find a money exchanger at the table in the temple because the rich don't work. The rich have their people do the work in this time. And so when Jesus is overthrowing tables, he's overthrowing people's livelihood and likely putting slaves and poor people in danger of their life and their livelihood from their masters. We gotta be careful about using this passage to justify violence because it may just end up being us on the receiving end. There's a danger in a singular savior is what this article read. And the point is that Jesus was part of a resistance community. Jesus did not do this all just by himself. And this author imagines that in all likelihood, these people sitting in the tables, the slaves, the women, the poor people were in cahoots with Jesus in acting this dramatic parable to send a message to their masters. This passage is not about violence. Violence is not the Jesus way. As was demonstrated one day before when Jesus came up a lowly donkey to be crowned as king, not on a big horse and with an army behind him like the Romans did on the other side of town. Jesus' way is not the way of violence. Jesus resisted violence, uh, resist, did not resist arrest. Jesus' way is not the way of violence. There was no revolution, no violent revolution. This story is not about violence. I don't know if you needed that today or not, but I needed to say that. Secondly, the story is about standing up against religious oppression. Jesus talks here about the scribes and the Pharisees in Isaiah and in uh, Jeremiah talks about the religious leaders. And it is clear from this passage that Jesus will not stand up or stand for the religious oppression by the leaders of the people. How can we as a church exclude people? Have we gone about our business and, and hide safely away in our church and worship while people are excluded? Wherever there's oppression, we stand up and we speak up. We act prophetically and not violently. We need to be careful how we do that and how we speak prophetically unless the monster becomes the monster. The monster we speak out against becomes the monster ourselves. This is a story not about violence. This is a story about standing up against religious oppression. Thirdly, it's a, this story is a warning against empty religious practice. Do we risk constraining God, keeping God boxed up in of the very houses that we construct to honor God's glory? Do we keep God boxed in the ways that we have shaped our liturgies and our buildings and our worship? Just like in Isaiah chapter one, where God says, you bring me your burnt sacrifices, your tithes, your offerings, your new moon festivals and Sabbaths, I hate. Your incense I will not smell. I will turn my eyes blind to you raising your hands. I will not listen to your prayers. These are all worship liturgy things. And then Isaiah says, I will not listen to any of this. I'll turn my back on it because you have not cared for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger of the gates. Have we made our 
religious practice a one-hour empty worship time. Lastly, number four, the story is about the vision of God embodied in the community of the Spirit. The story is not about violence. It is about standing up against oppression, religious oppression, and it is a warning against empty religious practices, but it is first and foremost a story about the vision of God that is embodied in people. My house of prayer will be a my, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus says, I cast out this temple. I close it. I shut it down because it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And now my temple will be in you. This is a vision of not just showing up, but opening up. It is easy to show up. But Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus, and Mark challenge us, don't just show up, open up, enlarge the circle, enlarge your inclusion. If the eunuchs, the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows belong, who else belongs? Last month, we spent the whole month sharing stories of black people in our congregation honoring Black History Month to bring us an awareness that we need to widen our embrace. This month, we're telling the story of Women for Women History Month in order to alert us to the fact we need to widen our embrace. Our LGBTQ plus siblings, we need a wider embrace. Our neighbors without homes in our community, they need a wider embrace. But let's bring it close to home. You and I need a wider embrace. And we need to have ourselves a wider embrace. We often think that we need to do these big things in order to accomplish the vision of God. Yes, we do need to do big things. But what about embracing the vision of God at home or at work or at your school with your friendship circles? What about that? Friends, this is difficult work. This is difficult work. The vision of God embodied in a building has been problematic the Hagia Sophia, the beautiful temple in Istanbul is an example of that. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. For 916 years, this was the worship space for Christians. And as violence does, wars happen, and people, when we have our particularities, we cannot get along. And then after 960 years of worship for Christians, it became 481 years of worship for Muslims. It became a mosque. And then in 1934, with a secular leader in Turkey, it was no longer for the Christians or no longer for the Muslims. It was now a secular temple for visitors to come visit. All people could come. They paid some money. And there's, of course, controversy in recent years where there's no longer a secular government but religious government, and there was controversy as it changes hands again. Friends, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations is hard work. It's hard work in the world and it's hard work in our lives. But Jesus calls us to hard work. So as we think about this story, we see this dream that God has and this broken reality of what it is not. And we are caught up in the middle of it. 
what will we do? Will we show up? And will we open up? And friends, just every now and again, the vision of God breaks through and becomes reality, even if just momentarily. I was reading yesterday about the movie Coda. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Coda. It's a movie, uh, Coda stands for children of deaf adults. And we all know the Oscars are happening tomorrow and Coda is nominated for three Oscars. Best film, best adaption, I think, and best um, supporting actor. As I'm reading about this story, this, this every now the vision of God breaks through reality and becomes a, rea- breaks through and becomes a reality if just momentarily, I thought about this story because as I read more about this, the producer, Cyan Hader, had uh, called on Marley Matlin, uh, who's this famous deaf actor that we've seen in The West Wing uh, and in many other uh, films. She's kind of like the go-to deaf actor. She won an Oscar in 1986. Isn't that incredible? First deaf person and only deaf person so far to have won the Oscar. And as Heater and Matlin, the two of them, work on this project, they look to secure finances for it. And movie studios came about and asked them, but the movie studios did not finance this because they lacked first-class, high-profile star actors. And so no studio wanted to finance it with deaf actors only. And Heaton and Matlin said, no, we will not make this project without the people who are marginalized and excluded. Representation matters. Nothing about us without us. The story we need to tell is of inclusion and embrace. And so they said, no, we will not make this film. And then beautifully, they were able to privately fund, uh, find funding for this film. And they made this small little film that now is nominated for three Oscars. And the beautiful thing is that Troy Kotzer, the dad who plays this, is now the second nominee, deaf nominee for Best Supporting Actor. And by all accounts, if movie critics are right, he will win it tomorrow night. I hope he does. In a world where people on the edges don't have a voice. God calls on us to be a house of prayer for all people. Do not let it become a den of robbers and sit safely in worship and say, I'm in church, I'm in church, I'm in church. God says, cast that idea out of your life, of your church, of your religious leaders of your ideas, but lean into the embrace and the love of God that every now and again breaks through and becomes a reality in the power of the Spirit. My friends, Jesus has a question for us. Jesus has a question for us. Is it not written? Is it not written in my house? We'll embrace all.